welcome to the Houston Innovators Podcast. I'm Natalie Harms, editor of Innovation Map. My guest for today is Steve Latham, co-founder of Donate Stock, a Houston startup that simplifies stock-based donations for both nonprofits and their donors. Steve and I discuss how Donate Stock's platform has evolved to make a greater impact for nonprofit organizations. He also shares how he's seen the Houston innovation ecosystem evolve since his early days at the Houston Technology Center, followed by decades of entrepreneurship within tech. Hi, Steve. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Natalie. Great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you because it's been a while since we've spoken and um, we're starting out the year with a conversation with you and about Donate Stock, but just some background on you. Tell us your story and how you came to co-found Donate Stock. Sure. Uh, well, I, I started my current finance and then after business school, went into private equity and then uh, pretty quickly took a, a left turn into the startup world. Um, this is a while back, so I'm going to date myself. Uh, when I when I moved back to Houston after uh, grad school in 97, I was tapped to be on the steering committee for this business incubator accelerator. And two years that, you know, two years kind of as part of a core member of the steering committee, we, we came up with this basically a strategy and plan and funding for what became the Houston Technology Center. Um, at the same time, I realized I didn't really want to be a financier, but want to be an entrepreneur. And so as we were about to open the doors, virtual doors anyway, for the Houston Technology Center in 99, I uh, left my job in private equity to join a, stop, a, a startup uh, nonprofit business accelerator, which was um, seemed kind of uh, unorthodox, but I, I it was just it was my passion. It was something I knew that uh, was going to be a great investment of time and energy and, and really seen through something we've been working on for a couple of years. So in, in January of 99, basically, uh, the, the CEO we had hired, uh, Paul Frazon, and myself and a loan admin opened, you know, in a, in a, in a, uh, a rented office or lease office or frankly given office, uh, the, the HTC. And, and then we kind of built that over the next couple of years. Um, so I spent a year there and then recruited a couple of folks to, to, to replace me and then went into, uh, join a software company. And I just love the startup culture. Just the, uh, I was, I went to a company called Penisafe, which was a, a really amazing success. Um, one of the first kind of really uh, big, big success, I think, for software and security, especially. Uh, there were other companies like Bindview is also successful back then. But uh, Penisave had a great culture. It was a lot of fun. When I joined, there was maybe 30, 40 people. Over the next three years, we were about 350 people. It just really blew up in a good way. And um, I, I learned a lot there. Uh, and, you know, it was it was really hard, but a lot of fun. And I ended up realizing thinking I was pretty much, you know, thinking I was ready to go do my own thing. So I left there in, um, I guess, after about three years. And then I um, spent a kind of interim stint with a software company out of Clear Lake. And then I started my own company in the fall of 02. Uh, and I wouldn't advise doing what I did. I started a company uh, basically called Spur uh, Digital, Spur Interactive with no experience, um, very little expertise in it. But I just had this real passion for thinking about how to, to market your business online. Those early days of the web. Uh, there's a lot of people who knew how to develop websites, but not how to market them. So started a company doing online marketing, even though I had no online or marketing experience. Um, but I found a lot of people that knew how to do it and patched together a team. And over the years, we had a, a lot of success um, until uh, the recession, frankly, in 2008, when I saw uh, that you know, our business shrank over the next year and a half by about 80%. Uh, I, was, I was thinking to myself, you know, it's kind of a bad business if you can be really good at what you do and your clients love you, but you can still shrink so much. It's just not a good business and it wasn't worth really rebuilding. So 
uh, stabilized it, sold it to another agency. And then um, we had developed some pretty interesting software for measuring performance of advertising. And so I took RIP, uh, took the money we had we had uh, raised from the sale of the company to from an agency here called DM3 at the time. And then I started a new company called Encore Metrics. Um, and then that took me to New York. So and after being a champion for New York, or sorry, for Houston startups, uh, for years and years, not only as a founder and first employee at the Houston Technology Center on the board, uh, the advisory board there for many years after, I ended up having to move to New York to basically to launch and grow a, um, a media marketing analytics company. So I was there for almost 10 years. Um, we, you know, it was tough sledding. It was really hard as a bootstrapping startup there, but uh, found our way to, uh, you know, a really good situation. We were acquired in 2016 by kind of the leading independent ad serving personalization company called Flash Talking. And then we were acquired in uh, a few years later by a company called Media Ocean, which was um, now is, is kind of the monopoly in global advertising, planning, buying, scheduling, ad serving, and now um, reconcil- reconciling, et cetera. So it, it was um, 18 years in ad tech, and that was enough for me. Uh, and I was, so a couple things were happening. I saw that kind of the end coming uh, in terms of an exit at uh, Flash Talking. And I also realized I wanted to get out of ad tech and I also realized I wanted to move back to Houston. So um, frankly, the pandemic allowed all those things to happen. I, uh, we, we are all basically dispersed. We shut down our Manhattan office and I was officing out of my, my house at the time up in the, in the Hudson Valley, north of the city with a kept up, you know, a, basically a, a work apartment in the city, but I was ready to go. And that's when I moved back to, to Houston in, um, in summer of 2020. Um, Having been away a long time, I was really excited to see everybody. And you know, moving back during a pandemic when no one can see you was uh, not, not what I expected. But it, it it was a great opportunity to start thinking about what I wanted to do next. And by that point, I'd already been thinking about this idea of charitable stock gifting, which had been um, for decades, you know, this really untapped opportunity for nonprofits. Uh, but some real serious problems with it. One, it's it's really difficult for a donor to make a stock gift. That was my experience when I made a terrible stock gift, you know, more than, I don't know, 10, 12, 14 years ago. It was such a hassle that I never did it again. Even the tax benefits were amazing because I could avoid the capital gains tax and the stock I was gifting. I got to then take out the full write-off. It was It's such a better way to give, uh, but it was so painful to do it. I, it was hours of work and I just said, it's not worth the hassle. And that was the idea that in 2020, I was thinking about, and I realized no one had made it easy. And I thought that, you know, is probably what I want to do next in my career, not just, you know, measuring out, optimizing ad spend, we're probably not making the world a whole lot better. But if we can actually help, you know, thousands of nonprofits unlock billions of dollars in funding, to me, it was really exciting just because of the impact that we could have. Uh, I grew up, you know, my mom was a uh, worked for American Cancer Society. She was a fundraiser for for them. So I've kind of grown up with that ethos of, of giving back and and being, you know, charitable and community minded uh, since I was young. So this just fit real well into what I wanted to do. Um, something that I could be passionate about in terms of you know what we're doing, our mission of making the world better. Uh, that I could leverage twenty plus years of startup experience and how do we quickly, efficiently bring together a team, build a, pl- a product, get feedback, validate it, tweak it, grow it, expand the business model, um, and build a really successful business uh, in a really interesting space of charitable giving. And then um, it was also something I could do here. And, and so it was just, it all fit together. And that was really, I realized that was uh, what I was destined to do. And this is kind of the, you know, hopefully I say uh, my last startup, because um, it is a lot of work as as every startup entrepreneur will tell you, especially uh, when you're trying to do it in a, you know, in a very tough funding environment. So 
we've um, that's kind of how it came to be. So I, you know, partnered with folks I've worked with for for many years. My my co-founders, um, Lenny, uh, is you know was my CTO. My last company has been our kind of overseas thing of him as our our CTO, and then um, Andrea Young here in Houston who. A long time ago, was my client, and then became really a good uh, friend and colleague. And when we started this, reached out to her to be part of this from the early on. She's played a really instrumental role in the way along the way. Um, you know, we all have money in the deal. We've all invested. We've all invested, you know, money, blood, sweat, tears um, to to make this work. And uh, so it's you know we're we're now year two. We're going into our third year, so we're, we're kind of think past the the point of is this going to work? Is this, are we solving a problem? You know, the answer is we are solving big problems. It does work. And now it's really about how to scale the business uh, again, on a very, um, you know, capital efficient way to do that. So I'll pause there for a second. Cause I know I just threw a lot of just through 20 years of uh, history and bringing up where we are today. But if there's anything that, I that isn't clear, I'm happy to, you know, to, to backtrack a little bit. Well, 20 years in just a few minutes, you nailed it. So that was a lot of ground to cover from early days of HTC, serial entrepreneurship, and now to donate stock. But before we go any further, and we're going to go through a couple of, of the areas of your expertise um, too, but I want to talk about donate stock specifically, because as you mentioned, the process prior to the platform has been arduous and time consuming. So how does the donate stock technology work to simplify the process? Well, there's really two major problems that we're addressing, uh, one of which I had no idea when we started this. It's like, a, again, I think one of the, the lessons I've learned from startups over the years is you, you're kind of looking at the surface. I say, I see a problem there. It's not till you really get in deep that you realize generally there are other larger problems that would not have been obvious to you or even known to you if you weren't you know, knee deep in it and elbow deep in it. So the first problem we, we saw was that it was just a really uh, difficult process for to, to make a charitable stock gift, despite amazing benefits. It's the most tax advantaged way to support a, a cause, um, hands down. Um, but the problem was it, it required a lot of research, a lot of calls, emails, filling out forms. Um, and then it was a really disjointed process with no transparency, not knowing where the stock is or what's how it's moving from your account to the nonprofit's account. It was just, it was hours and hours of work. And that's what is a major deterrent because when people realize how much work it, it, it has been, they just say, you know what, I'll just write you a check or I'll just do it on my credit card. I, was, I could give you, you know, $2,000 of stock, but I'll just, but then I paid $200 for 10 years ago when I bought Apple. Uh, but I... I don't feel like going through all that hassle and I'll just give you a $500 donation on a credit card. Right. So that's kind of the, the, how a lot of people have done that. So the first thing we thought is like, this is not hard to, you know, make this experience better for the donor. And that was kind of our first solution was really to, that we stood up about two years ago was let's just make it easy for a donor to initiate a stock gift so that we can get all the information needed from the nonprofit and from the donor package that up and then initiate the gift through the, the donor's brokerage and then track it through the process till it finally gets received and uh, acknowledged. And then we get a fee for that. That was kind of the first idea is making it easy, free for the donor with the nonprofits paying us a fee to help facilitate this for them. Uh, and that was our, our launch with five or six local nonprofits two years ago and around right before Christmas of 2020. Then over the next few months, we just heard from all these small nonprofits that uh, they want to receive stock too, but they didn't have a brokerage account. And we learned another big problem in the industry is that small nonprofits can't get brokerage accounts because of what are called the KYC and AML compliance requirements. So know your customer, you know, banks and 
financial institutions have really high compliance requirements to make sure that you know the people that they're banking or managing investment accounts for are legit citizens, you know, legal and good standing, et cetera. And so, the, and and unfortunately, small nonprofits have historically been plagued with a lot of fraud. I mean, anybody can get a five hundred one c three. Literally, you you f- fill out a form with IRS, and you can get a five hundred one c three. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of them have been either fraudulent from the beginning, or j- they just got duped, and because they're not, you know, it's just something aside uh, hobby for them. So brokerages were telling these small or, uh, nonprofits, "We can't serve you. We can't open an account for you." There's also no money in it for them because all the nonprofits want to do is receive a stock gift, sell the stock, and move the cash into their banking account. So there's just no market for them. So what we realize is there's a big problem here: is that 99.9% of charities can't even open a brokerage account. So that was a big problem we had to solve. Um, we also learned that the process of charitable stock gifting is, uh, it's just, it's so opaque and, and archaic. It's, it's, it's almost not believable. So we we tend to think that if we fill out a form, I want to send, let's say, you know, 10 shares of Apple to this nonprofit. And here's the form I filled out for my broker. They have all of my information. They send the stock. We assume that our identity that they'll know who sent the stock, that our information travels with it. Unfortunately, it doesn't. So charities, unfortunately, all they see is stock shows up in their account and they don't know whose stock is whose. So unless you tell a nonprofit proactively, I'm sending you 10 shares of Apple from my Schwab account this week, and then they can actually make a note of it. And they're like, okay, those are Steve's shares. Well, 90% of people don't even know that, probably more, 95% of donors don't know that. So they go initiate a stock gift. The nonprofit has no idea that it's their stock. The donor's waiting to be acknowledged. And the nonprofit didn't even know that they gave them the stock. So normally what happens is months pass, the donor finally reaches out, normally disgruntled, hey, can I at least get my tax receipt if I can't even get a thank you note? The response is, we're really sorry. We didn't. We have no idea whose stock this is. Uh, what did you give us and when? Let us go research it. Because they have lots of lost gifts, unknown gifts of who donated it. So it's not just an operational problem and financial problem. It's a donor relations problem for the charities too. So the big ones really struggle with this. So the small ones can't get access to a brokerage account. So they can't receive stock. The big ones can't process the stock gifts they get. So there's we had to solve problems on both sides of that. And again, we had no idea going into it that these conditions actually existed. So um, what we did is we created uh, a 501c3, uh, our own charitable foundation called Donate Stock Charitable. It's a separate public nonprofit. And uh, we it, its charitable purpose is to facilitate stock gifts for small nonprofits that don't have a brokerage account, can't get a brokerage account, or the large ones that frankly just don't have the administrative team and the hassle or the expense of trying to process and reconcile and acknowledge and, and uh, transfer gifts um, the, the, that they have to do once they start getting a large volume of them. So uh, that was pretty in, uh, innovative and, and, and really solved a big problem that we can say to charities like no brokerage, no problem. We'll send the stock to Donate Stock Charitable. We'll sell the stock. It's, it effectively serves as, think of as a donor advice fund sponsor. It sells the stock and then we'll send you the cash and we'll send the donor an acknowledgement letter. So all you have to literally do is put a donate stock button on your site, a little bit of information about, you know, inviting your donors to donate stocks at a cash or credit card, and we'll just send you money. Uh, and so that that really, really resonated well. So then we, we validated that in the fall of 21. Um, about that time, that was, let's say, 15 months ago, we had probably 50, 60 nonprofits on our platform up from like three or four the previous year. So we're feeling like, OK, the linear growth is OK, but there's over a million nonprofits. How are we going to service them all? So uh, we actually created a page for every nonprofit on DonateStock.com. So if there's a 501c3, 501c3 in good standing today, you can donate stock to them on our site. 
you get you just search for them, their name or their EIN, and you can make a stock gift. When we get that stock, we'll send it to Donate Stock Charitable, we'll sell it, and we'll contact the charity and say, hey, you've got money. We have a gift for you. Natalie Harms just made, you know, donated, you know, $1,400 in the form of 10 shares of Apple. We just need you to register with us for free, provide the KYC info we need to legally send you this information. We're not going to charge you for this first one. But now that you're signed up on our platform, here's an easy button. Here's content. Here's an email to your donors, to your board. Go out and start promoting stock gifting. It will help you make this a really important part of your fundraising program. So we're trying to help those nonprofits that have historically relied on their annual gala for 90% of the budget. You know, we learned the hard way during COVID that you can't rely on these big events because they're just not always going to happen or there'll be reasons people won't attend them. And so you've got to diversify your fundraising um, programs. You can't rely on people just write you checks every year. They're getting asked. There's a lot of competition for the, for the donors wallets. You have to be really thoughtful in how you're engaging them, communicating, building relationships with them and making it easy for them to donate what they want, how they want, when they want. Uh, so we we basically uh, started kind of delivering that message last fall, and to date we've grown since then um, about thirty fold. So we have over a thousand nonprofits on the platform today that have signed up, um, and that that's that gives us kind of the, the dominant share to date in terms of nonprofits that are used relying on us for stock gifting. But there, keep in mind, there's a million and a half charities, so that's still a tiny fraction, right? So what we realized also about year ago is the only way we're going to really grow quickly and how to scale is if we um, become, think of us as PayPal for stock gifting, an easy button that could be deployed across any online donation platform. So that was really that where we then focus on how do we, now that we've proven it and we've shown that our process works, we have this end-to-end solution that's unique and differentiated. It works, it's proven. We have great, you know, really happy donors, happy nonprofits, now let's scale that by making that button available to uh, the 20 or 25 online donation platforms that process um, regular gifts, credit card gifts, uh, Venmo, PayPal, even crypto gifts for all of the nonprofits out there. So that's where we started positioning ourselves as really going from direct sales so much more to think of us as channel distribution. So there's about, you know, I, I think it's about 60% of donors now give online. If you go to a website, like if you go to Shriners Hospitals or World Central Kitchen, there's um, they don't have their own tech stack. They didn't build their own transaction processing system. They just use a company, someone like Classy or Fundraise or Better Unite or Give Smart or Donor Perfect or 20 others. And they basically just provide that, think of them as that, that donation form and processing and, and all the data capture for that for the charities and they just charge them a fee. So now our whole strategy is put our easy button inside those giving platforms. And that gives us access to tens of thousands of site uh, of nonprofit sites really quickly. So that was really the, the focus for this year um, was to put, set ourselves up to scale through distribution partners, through channels, rather than try to convince every nonprofit, you know, one at a time to, to go through the onboarding process. And so that's where we're at today. We just deployed across with four nonprofits collectively, I'm sorry, giving platforms that serve collectively about 20,000 nonprofits. Uh, we have another 10 in the, in the pipeline right now, partners that, you know, if all goes well, we should be distributed across 70, 75,000 um, nonprofit sites a year from now. And that, and that really would make us you know, I kind of jokingly say that a benevolent uh, monopolist in the space, if, if think of us as, as PayPal for stock gifting, if our button's everywhere and becomes ubiquitous, we become really that trusted way for a quick, easy way for the donors, efficient, 
low cost for the nonprofits and a way to scale as ways well to get access to gifting. So we, it's, it's a long winded answer to like, how, what do you do? How do you solve the problem? Cause there's a lot of problems to solve, especially in the, uh, in the financial services. I mean, there's a reason FinTech is such an important industry because these archaic uh, systems, the, the, the plumbing that was architected two, three decades ago, you know, with different architecture uh, to, to transfer money or funds or data between institutions. Um, so we're, we're just basically trying to create new plumbing that, you know, kind of makes, makes everything work and, and everything flow quick, more quickly, easily with transparency, efficiency. And so uh, that's where we are today. So it's, it's an exciting time. We're kind of at a, an inflection point it's where we've, you know, we've gone through multiple phases already in two years, and now we're about to go through the, the scale phase. So exciting, uh, scary, all that at the same time. Yeah, well, you totally tackled a couple of my questions all in all in that response, which was just, you know, how you've evolved the product over the years. How are you reaching out to people and making, you know, sure people know about this this opportunity and this option and also making it easier. And you've also talked a little bit about your next goal. But when you think of 2023 and how to, you know, reach the goals you have, mm-hmm. what challenges and opportunities you're facing? What's the physical to-do list you're looking at through the new year. Yeah. Okay. How long do we have? Uh, so opportunities are so numerous. We literally, we've identified like three, four new market opportunities, but we're really focused on becoming that trusted platform for individual giving uh, for donors to give stock to the causes they care about and to be that trusted vendor for the, for the nonprofit so that they know that we're the brand used by, you know, we're, we're used by brand A, B, C, D, E, F, all the major, you know, online giving, pla- all, all, not the platforms themselves, the partners, but also the the big nonprofits like the World Central Kitchens, the, the Shriners. The, those are examples. We have a lot of other big ones in the queue that we'll be announcing in, in coming months. But for us, it's um, just executing. Um, it, it's making sure that the product continues to scale and meet the needs of a lot of different uh, audiences and use cases. So continuing having an architecture that allows you to be flexible and actually be able to add new capabilities to it is is, is super important. Um, it's getting you know it's building the relationships with your distribution partners and understand you know our, our and our messaging to them is real simple. Like you know you need stock gifting button. You know you can't build it. Um, and here is, you know, a proven solution that we'll um, put in your platform and share revenue with you. So we're not charging them a big SaaS fee to use it. We're making it a, a creative to the business, a revenue generator for offering a new way for their nonprofits to receive um, gifts. It's providing great support to the donors when they have donor. Uh, when we get questions in live chat, you know, we have live, actually real people on live chat. And a lot of these questions are from donors who are doing this for the first time. You've got to have great support. It's got to be a good, easy experience for them because this is something very few people have experience with. Same with nonprofits. Like you've got to be able to one, you know, when you when they sign up, you got to we we have an onboarding session where we actually kind of walk them through everything in their portal, where they get their assets, educate their donors or their board, how to implement the 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 content that we're giving them to help educate their everybody, uh, how to use the platform, how the dashboards work you know, understanding how long it takes for the stock to get through the system, for the cash to be available and when to get it. So there's a lot of educating that takes place today because it's a fairly new uh, mode of fundraising and giving for most people. Uh, So customer success is obviously critical for us. Um, if If you're sales oriented and you can't support it, you won't succeed. So we've tried to build both this, the, the, the CS, the customer success, along with our business development and our sales and our market marketing. I think thus far, you know, our feedback's been, we have a lot of happy customers. So now it's just 
how do you then automate a lot of those things so it's not as much high touch? So that's a, a automation and scaling the operation side is, is just, that's the hardest thing, I think, in a, in a business like that, that's kind of software that is in a new space where people just aren't very familiar with it. So um, the opportunities are numerous. The biggest challenges right now are our capital. I mean, it's 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 just a really difficult time, you know, raising money, especially in fintech with the implosion of fintech companies' valuations. It's been, you know, it's challenging. We were we were having introductory meetings last, uh, you know, March, April, May, with the plan of raising a, our first kind of external priced round, institutional round in June. And um, it just we we saw by late April, early May that the VCs were putting their pens down and just going to wait and see what happened because the inflation picture and uh, the you know the, the the fears of recession and the implosion of of uh, public comps uh, and valuations. So we um, we've had it. You know we went back to our existing investors and raised some more capital. So we we're fortunate today. We've raised about two point two and a quarter million just from uh, family offices, angels. And uh, our in our management team, like we have, you know, a fourth of the capital in the business ourselves or more. But so we've extended our, you know, we've raised more money to extend our runway, keeping a super tight lid on expenses because your cash is your oxygen. And if you run out, then you're in a problem. And there's companies going out of business we see in our industry right now that had really promising businesses. They just did not have a very, um, uh, they just spent too much money and didn't have way before they could get to the revenue to cover it. So we're trying to be very pragmatic. And again, I think that's where having a couple of decades of experience and been through the dot-com implosion, seeing a recession there, 2008, seeing a recession there. Like this is, you know, arguably my third time I've seen this. So this is kind of like, I know how, I know the playbook, right? You get conservative, you look for ways to maximize your revenue, conserve your costs, and but you got to keep executing, right? You have to still attract good people, you got to, you know, give them good incentives. Um, and make sure you have very well designed uh, job descriptions and expectations of what every person's supposed to do. And then it's really about the people that's doing the work. And you know, we're blessed to have just a, a really great team of leadership and you know, everyone, everyone down to you know, throughout the organization uh, puts their heart and soul into it. And that's that's hard to find. Um, but again, I think that's that's also a big benefit of doing business here, right? Where we, you know, the, the here in Houston and, and our team is. Almost all, but two people are in Texas. We have a few in Dallas, but you know the, the majority of the people are here, and it just makes um, allows you to you know work with people. And you know we're doing a hybrid kind of some work from home, some work in in our office, um, and, and trying to train and coach and and motivate and and at the same time get really you know we have to execute really really well every day. So it's 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 kind of the same problems every business has but it's just a little amplified in that that you have to do all this incredibly capitally efficient and uh at the same time you know you've got to always kind of think about raising money so we're we're prepping to do a you know go back out and to try to raise a a, a price round in q1 so um, right now we're we're trying to get through the giving season uh today as we record this it's uh was it december what are we on the 20th um Yesterday was our second big, busiest day of the year. This is on pace to be one of the busiest ones too. So we're just, you know, right now we're flat out just focused on end of year giving. But uh, next year, early part of the year is when we'll really start thinking about how do we really set up the the business to continue scaling. Yeah, I think the like running um, a, a fintech and an impactful innovation startup in this situation the world is today is like juggling eight pins in a rainstorm 
while on the top of a car going like 80 miles per hour. It sounds like the condition is for you um, in this holiday season and also, you know, potential financial crisis and everything. So thanks for setting that scene for sure. I want to zoom in a little bit on impact innovation in general, since I feel like you're a great person to weigh in on that and how it's evolved over the years. I think that's something I've noticed just in reporting a a trend that for-profit startups that are tackling something impactful, and it it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive now to have a for-profit company that's doing good in the world. So for you, how has that evolved? What's your experience with that? Where's it going? Yeah, we can definitely do well by doing good. What what people sometimes fail to read realize that this is a massive market. So I spent the last 18 years prior to this in the the marketing advertising tech industry and, and advertising, US advertising is about 250 billion is spent on ads every year. You think about the, you know, the, the crumbs that fall off of, of Google's and Facebook's plate and now, you know, Amazon, soon Apple's, all, you know, you thousands of companies, all uh, agencies and technology providers, all, you know, fighting for that share for those scraps falling off their plate. Um, individual giving and charitable giving is actually a $500 billion industry annual here in the States. Individual giving is about $300 billion. So it's literally charitable giving is 2x what advertising is. And there's only about 100 players in the space. So it's it's a very different uh, dynamic than what I've seen, which I love. I'm like, wow, we can we have very limited competition. We can partner with everybody. We can get to know everybody in this space in a year or two um, and and really become known by everybody. We could have never done that in ad tech. It would have taken years and years and years and tens of millions of dollars to spend to get there. Here we can do it just by being good members of the community and a lot of education, a lot of thought leadership, a lot of partnering, collaborating. And so um, you can you can definitely build a very successful business in the impact and in the giving space, especially when you realize that you don't need a big share of a you know three hundred billion dollar individual giving pie to to have a really successful business. So that's that's part of it. Um, one thing I also like is just the the organizations, the companies we work with um, are great. Like everyone has is has some heart for what we do. Like we are trying to help nonprofits unlock funding so they can help impact their communities and serve their, the, their, the, you know, the, the, who they were uh, originally, you know, their mission is to go out and serve whatever people or communities or pets or fighting cancer, or researching cancer, whatever it might be. Like there's, there's so many amazing causes that we get to help support uh, just by helping them be better at fundraising and, and accessing new sources of funding. So that's a lot of fun, but I just really enjoyed the um, and the ability to be very innovative in a space that historically is not known for innovation. It's becoming a lot more innovative. There's some really smart companies that we're working with uh, in this in the industry right now, and so I see a lot of things that have been done, like in the marketing and advertising industry for the last twenty years, are kind of you know kind of old hat, are now being implemented here, uh, which is opens up a whole new set of possibilities for nonprofits um, to be more successful, especially those that can lean into innovation and be a little more open-minded, not just say, well, this is how we've always done it. Those organizations are going to have a difficult time surviving. They've got to become, you know, more market-driven, customer-driven, donor-driven. And so there's, um, in that regard, it's just a lot of fun. Like, you know, we're, we're making the world better. We're bringing innovation to a space that historically has not been known for that. We get to work with everybody, um, and we're not we're not putting people out of work. We're not 
disrupting, you know, we're not trying to disrupt a bank and, and take their payments business. We're trying to unlock a new source of funding that's just going to be accretive for everybody. So in, the, in those regards, I mean, impact's fun. Like we love it. Uh, it's just it, historically it's been hard to build a successful business, but you know, for us, if we can, you know, our numbers, it's such a big, big pie that we're targeting. If we just get one and a half percent of investors to make an annual $3,000 gift, we can generate somewhere in the neighborhood of um, three, $4 billion in funding for nonprofits. And from that, you know, we can be a, um, you know, a hundred million dollar company. So there's, it's a, we have a great runway and a great opportunity to be very successful while also, you know, bringing in billions of funding for new, for, for good causes. Yeah. That sounds like the perfect intersection and um, you're doing it right here in Houston. So let's talk about Houston and, and how you've seen it evolve from the early HCC days and then coming back from New York and being able to compare those two markets. And Houston's been known as a charitable city too. So what has it been like for you launching this company here after a couple decades of evolution within the innovation ecosystem? Yeah. Yeah. What's your, what are your thoughts on, on the ecosystem these days? Yeah. When I moved back to Houston 97, um, after grad school, I, I was, you know, very interested in technology. I had no tech background. So I was, I was, you know, I was in finance, I was a private equity guy, but what I started realizing is there were a lot of pockets of technology around the city. You know, you had BMC software, which has spun out so many companies. You had Compaq now, you know, then HP up in up North, you had some really good companies that have been really successful, but no one knew about them. They didn't get a lot of press or exposure and there was no community. There's no place to network and meet other people like-minded. So most entrepreneurs, you know, startup entrepreneurs back then were kind of in their own little world secluded from everybody. So the, the original goal of the, of the technology center was just to provide a place to bring everybody together, uh, educational programming to help maybe connect investors with startups and service providers and mentors and advisors. And I think, you know, it was a, it was starting from very little and, and made a lot of progress. You know, the model needed to be revised. And that's really where I think Station Houston came in and really kind of and Houston Exponential kind of took it, you know, what had been done and, and built on that. And now you see what's happening at the ION, which is, I mean, if the ION was here 20 years ago, like it would be a very different situation. So it's it's better late than never. Um, but it, it was historically pretty tough as a tech entrepreneur here. But now there's just one, there's so many people who now have been successful, you know, in in startups, in technology, building successful businesses, whether it's, you know, IT, you know, whether it's software or life sciences or application of aerospace technology or energy transition and new technologies to help, you know, tech has been a major driver, as we all know, of the energy industry over the last, you know, 20 years in terms of bringing costs down, increasing profitability, efficiency. Um, so I, I feel like Houston's very well positioned, but it, it just doesn't have the rep. It's just not known as a place for um, innovation in things like software, even though we've had, you know, decades now of um, amazing, you know, software development companies. And there's so many successes uh, that that they just don't also get as much light in a in in a city like Houston that's so you know the scale here of industry is so massive that if you took what our tech community has done here and put it in a you know more of a you know think of a a, a middle tier city population wise it would be a tech you know it, that's all it would be known for but here it's kind of in the it's still in the shadow of of energy transportation real estate. Um, really big industrial, right? We're a big B2B town. So 
It's um, it's continuing to grow, and 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 when you see just you know the the institutions, the universities, you know the city hall, the Great Eastern Partnership, you see, and this is not just a flash in the pan. This is decades of support, decades of awareness, and 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 proponents. So I, you know, it's it's been fantastic to see how it evolves. Um, I feel honestly like I don't feel so super super in the know anymore. Connected, there was a time when I felt like I was right in the middle as the nexus of it all. Now I'm like I have no idea what's going on here because I just don't have the time to go network like I did when I was in my 20s or 30s. I'm, you know, it's it's a different situation these days. But I certainly observe a lot. And, you know, and you, you guys do great work to to you know to to socialize and and merchandise and showcase the, the great things happening here. So. Hats off to, to you and to Dave and the team that they're driving this. So um, we're all, all the point, you know, everything's pointing in the right direction. We're making good progress. We just got to keep doing it and, you know, and, and continue to foster innovation and support the companies here. But I see that happening just at, at an accelerating rate. So it's uh, it's very exciting and, and affirming, you know, after all these years to see so much progress. That's such a great perspective. And I don't know that anyone has ever talked about it in that way, that the tech ecosystem and the the tech companies here and um, what's happening within innovation in Houston would be really great if it was like not being compared to our other industry. On a relative basis, yeah. If you put it in, you know, you put it in where I'm from, Oklahoma City, like it would be, you know, it would be what Oklahoma City would be known for. If you put it in, you know, put it in Midland, like not Midland, but if, if there's a lot of... Uh, it is. It's a blessing and a curse, right? They have so much industry, um, but it's, but you can have both. And we're, and I think we're showing you can do both really well. Is that now I'm like, it's kind of like making me think about why Austin has been overshadowing Houston's tech ecosystem is because, well, I mean, did Austin have much business? Uh, I don't want to say to compete, but like, there was no other standout, at least from my knowledge, standout industry. I can, I can tell you exactly what happened. Like in my, um, Second year of business school, uh, we actually wrote a case on Austin. Um, so uh, we're uh, a lot of people may remember Michael Porter is like the father of strategy. He was a he was a professor at, at Harvard. And um, second year, he offered to lecture if we wrote cases. So I was part of a team. We wrote it. We studied Austin, how it evolved from originally just a university and government town. It had two sectors: government and university. And then uh, what happened was. Um, <laughs> The, the 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 state officials, the local officials had the vision to see that there was a lot of um, federally funded research taking place around semiconductor research. And all these cities around the country were submitting this back in the 70s, were submitting bids to basically get these research funds to do the research there. And Austin University, of Texas, being a world class and you know, one of the you know, a great university uh, here in the States. Um, with the state government and the city government all there, they basically put together a super compelling proposition for to win what was called the Semitech um, investment. Uh, so that funded semiconductor research, R&D, basic research in, in uh, Austin. And that then started spawning, that research started spawning new technologies that then became commercialized. And again, to your point, they had no other major industry, right? So then it was, let's put all of our resources in where we actually have some type of competitive differentiator, a comparative advantage, and started investing in uh, supporting these startups. Um, so you had the, you know, the, it became a center for light manufacturing and then for innovation and uh, a lot, and became kind of the epicenter, you know, in this part of the country for, for early stage R&D and tech commercialization. 
Um, but they absolutely benefited from the fact that they said, we, we have, we got to do something industrious. Um, and we have this great university. We have a lot of smart people. We have a, a mentality, a, a Texas culture of entrepreneurship and, and, uh, you know, kind of the, uh, de- determination and, and, and grit and the ability to take risks. And this is just, you know, think of these as wildcatters of the, you know, the 21st century, uh, or 20th century at the time. And now it's, um, they've just built on that. So, I mean, Austin has amazing scale. They have an amazing, you know, they've built an amazing market there. Um, it's, you know, it's a great place to start and grow a technology company. Uh, there are some comparative advantages here, but Houston has a lot of advantages too, um, especially if you want to have a home and raise family and have, you know, have uh, access to get around and, and, you know, maybe you're, uh, you know, Austin's great, but I, I, there's a lot of people that choose to be here instead. And I'm definitely one of them. Yeah, no, I I try to like hold myself back a little bit, but my Houston native, my proud Houston native self is is yeah. showing when I try to compare Austin and Houston, and that that just makes a lot more sense. And hopefully, listeners can learn something too from that dynamic and how both cities have developed separately. But all in all, like it's a huge Texas is becoming a huge um, hub for innovation as a whole, and we're better better together, I think, than competing, right? So. Yeah. So I'm from Oklahoma. So I'm an OK. I'm not even Texan, but I, you know, grew up in Oklahoma City. I've worked in Dallas three times. Um, I've, you know, spent a big chunk of my career in Houston. I prefer Houston. Like I, and people ask why. I'm like, it's just, it boils down to the people, the culture. Um, you have the opportunity. It's, it's much more of a meritocracy here. I think if you have something to contribute, you can do business with whoever you want. It's not about necessarily, you know, where you went to school or who your folks are. It's what do you bring to the table? And if you have, something to contribute and you're willing to work hard. I think there's no better market in the country than, than here. I mean, that's why I'm here. And I, I love, you know, say like, I, Dallas is great. It'd be closer to my family, but this is a, this is a better place to be. And honestly, the relationships that have developed here over the last couple of decades, last three decades, I guess, um, I wouldn't trade for anything. So I, I view it as um, every city, you know, there's pros and cons to every market, right? When you put all of our product pros against our cons, I think we stack up, you know, really, really well. Um, I tell people like, if you took the, the the best KPIs of the top five cities in the U.S. and you didn't know the names of the cities, but you were to pick where you want to live based on, you know, quality of life, cost of living, GDP, average salaries, um, green space, arts, food, you would pick Houston. You wouldn't know. And then you say, well, how is that Houston? How? What do you mean geographically or you know demographically diverse? Like people literally have no idea if they if they haven't spent time here or we haven't done a really good job of positioning ourselves as a city, you know, in the national scene. So I feel like there, there's there's a lot more substance here than than uh you know is known. And that's that's you know that's one of the challenges slash opportunities that will probably always be part of Houston is how do we deliver that message and and you know help people understand what a great place to just live here like none of my friends are from here like i'll, I'll no one's from here <laughs> i say that i know you are not a native but <laughs> yeah. i say that jokingly like hardly anyone i know is from here yet we all chose to live here um a lot of my friends are from overseas a lot of friends from the coast or from all over and we just you know this just came a place not all of us maybe wanted to move to but then once we did we we grew to love it and so i'm you know always be a big you know fan and ambassador for for houston especially living in new york for 10 years where I heard, you know, all the time what people thought and they just couldn't get their head around the fact that you're from Houston. Like they just could not figure it out. Um, and when I moved back, a lot of people like, were you, were you moving to Texas? Austin, no. Dallas, no. 
where Houston, Houston. And I was like, yeah, here's why. And, and they're like, wow, I had no idea. It's just, you know, that's, that's part of the opportunity. It's always been Houston's situation. So, uh, but, you know, slowly, surely though, the more, uh, the more people you get experience firsthand, I think the the easier that story will be to tell. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is one of my favorite subjects, so we could literally go on forever, but I'll, I'll call it there. And just to wrap up, give us a quick rundown of, you know, people listening who are like donating stock. That's a great idea. How can they get involved and learn more? What's the easiest way to do that? It's the most tax advantaged way uh, to give to support causes you care about. And and we say like, give, give the charity your, your money, not the IRS, like make a pre-tax stock gift. You get to avoid the capital gains tax. So in the stock you're giving, you get to write off the full fair market value. The charity doesn't pay tax on the capital gain either. So it's basically deferring the tax and giving it to them instead of the government. So we are big, you know, it's a most tax advantage way to give. It's the smartest way to give. And it's now super easy. Just in a few minutes, if you go to donatestock.com, you can literally choose from one, 0.3 million nonprofits to to support with a charitable stock gift. It takes a few minutes to register, initiate your gift. It's fast, safe, and free for donors. Uh, nonprofits, we we charge them about half what they pay all in for credit cards. So it's a, it's a win-win for everybody. And it's easy. Awesome. Well, that was short and sweet. And anyone listening should take you up on that opportunity for sure. So Steve, thanks so much for speaking with me today. It was a pleasure to learn all about Donate Stock and, and how far y'all have come. Thanks, Natalie. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Houston Innovators Podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss next week's edition and check out innovationmap.com for the latest Houston startup and innovation news. Mm -hmm.